Welcome to She Bought That DVD, the podcast where every week we are watching one new DVD from our Mother's Giant collection. I am your co-host, Jaylene. And I'm Violet. And what DVD did we pick last week to watch this week? I picked Moulin Rouge. Correct. And uh, neither of us had seen this film. Nope. You explained a little bit last week as to why you picked this film, but if no one listened to last week's episode... Could you give it a little bit of an explanation as to why this was your pick for this week's episode? I was camping and I was walking up a hill to my tent at night. Um, and I was thinking how much I really wanted to watch Romeo plus Juliet, which is my favorite film, which had me thinking, oh, I need to watch or I want to watch Moulin Rouge, but I haven't watched it. Because it's in this rotation, it could come up. And I've been refraining from watching any movies that potentially could get picked, even though it could be picked in 20 years. Um, 18 at this point. Yeah, okay. 18 years. Wow. (laughs) Really, really starting to count down. Um, And and then it dawned on me, I get to pick a movie. So I picked this one because I really, really wanted to see it. And have you seen Australia? No, I haven't. Okay. That's another one. We own it, though. Correct. We do. Yeah. We own a lot of his films. There's one. There's one that apparently is really good. I want to say it's called Strictly Dancing. Yeah, that's his first film. And apparently it's very, very well done. Mm -hmm. But we don't own it. No. And I don't... Which means I can watch it. So I don't... I, You know what? Note to self. Gonna watch that. Okay. Gotcha. And I was gonna say, I don't know if that was a big, like, DVD release. It might have done, like, really, really well... But I don't think it's like a big DVD release back then because it was 80. I think it was like 91 or not. It was in the 90s. And I went down Baz Luhrmann's IMDb kind of profile to see what else has he's been up to, because like the big one that came out not too long ago was Elvis. And I wanted to see kind of like how many projects is he taking on? And it seems as though like. He takes, I wouldn't say breaks, but probably like exploratory times because, holy shit, his films are very, very much involved. There's a lot to them. Yeah. And he is like very hands on when you watch any behind the scenes um, with like writing, directing, music, like he is very involved and like has a very clear image of what he wants. Um, yeah, I think he's just a fascinating man, but you're right. He does take long breaks or pauses between projects. He did, there was a Netflix series mm-hmm. that he was a part of for a couple of years. So I felt like that also was a reason why he wasn't putting out any movies for a little bit. Yeah. I uh, don't quote me on this because I didn't like, I looked at it, but I didn't memorize it, but it seemed as though like from Australia to Elvis was actually like what the jump was. Like there was little projects uh, in between. Great Gatsby. Oh, correct. You are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So the Great Gatsby and then it jumped into um, Elvis was the next film. And I believe that is what it is. My facts could be completely wrong. There could be something else. But you are correct. It was the get down. That he was a part of, was it not? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Netflix, there was also a couple other shorts that he appeared 
to have had his hand in. I don't know if he had direct like ownership over them, but yeah. So he's had his name attached to a couple of things in between like his really big dare, like meteor projects. Like these projects are huge that he takes on. This is our first Baz Luhrmann's film. We then have two more in the docket to watch. No, we have three more. We have Australia, mm-hmm. we have Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. and, and we have Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby. So we pretty much own all of his except for Elvis, but we have talked about Elvis before. We talked about that last summer because I had seen it and then you had seen it. Yep. Your, your recollection on your face saying she doesn't remember. No, no, I saw oh, it. Okay. I just was like, it, the face was, I'm disappointed because I don't think we'll ever own that film, was what that face was. I mean, there's no <laughs> harm in buying it and then throwing it in the collection eventually but like it's I'm not immediately rushing to go and get it and adding it is my no say on it no yeah I don't even want to mention to get it either is like literally that face was disappointment of oh I don't think we'll ever own it as much as I would love to and I don't really want to sit down and watch it for this podcast either it's just something I would like to have to watch if I want to watch. <laughs> yeah, that's completely fair. So for this film, as I've already mentioned, neither of us have seen this movie before. I knew very little about this film, excluding the fact that I knew that Satine didn't know her name, but I knew Nicole Kidman was in the film and she comes down on a trapeze of some sort is the, a, be- is the best way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a swing trapeze, but she doesn't trapeze on it like artistically gymnastics wise. Mm-hmm. I knew about the scene because it's now been 12 years when I made the costume for my friend for diamonds uh, is diamonds are a girl's best friend. She, that was like her favorite movie. And that was a costume that she had dreamed of having but like literally no costume store would ever have anything like that. It's very, very niche. Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to find images of this costume and it being really difficult because 12 years ago, 2011. Yeah, I think 2011 kind of sounds about right. Google imaging was like great and everything at this time, but it doesn't have like the kind of database. And YouTube, I don't believe was in the same like era that we are on now where you could probably just like look up the scene on YouTube. Yeah, and and watch a small clip of it. Yeah. And so she found me like a couple of pictures. And the issue is the lighting in the pictures don't necessarily do it justice like the film does it. And so she was telling me about like the scallop pattern and all of like these other things that are on it. And I have like three pictures to go by. I'm thinking, okay, like I'll, I'll do the best that I can. I did do a really good job of it. I'm really proud of it. I remember it being really well done. And a part of me is like, do you have any pictures? I have pictures somewhere on the internet of her in it, but not necessarily. I don't remember. Like, I don't know if I have pictures of it. I might. This was a long time ago. Yeah, it might be on a hard drive somewhere. And I was then watching this scene and I was thinking, oh, like, I did a good job of it. But there are some details that I clearly either overlooked 
or I just didn't notice the first time because of the photo quality that I would necess- I would definitely change on it. But yeah, that like I made her Halloween. She was all happy about it. And I was like quite happy about it. I also then was thinking, and I know this is like not really. It's not related to this at all, but just like the parallels between like the costuming in this movie very similar to like Taylor Swift's costumes and very like bedazzled and very over the top. And I was then thinking how many people who have like recreated her costumes and will probably recreate them for Halloween. And I was thinking it is a little bit disappointing not growing up and being like in your 20s when Moulin Rouge was out to see if anyone else was recreating these costumes at that time. Because A, I was 10, you were nine or nine and (laughs) (laughs) eight nine I think nine Halloween 2001 eight so then I was nine yeah I hadn't even turned 10 just thinking the fact that I remember she went to the nightclub that no longer exists and people were like what are you what are you what are you oh but like it didn't bother her like well, that yeah because it was her dream costume it wouldn't bother me either exactly but I was just thinking wow it kind of like did a bit bit of a disservice of like you had to be in that specific era to know exactly or it's like super super niche but then I was just thinking I would love to try my hand at recreating that costume again and seeing if I could do it better but I then was also thinking I haven't been to a Halloween party in probably eight years. I'm not planning on going to a Halloween party anytime soon. So I have no need to do a costume like that. And that's really the extent of my knowledge for Moulin Rouge. The other extent was I went to Paris. I went to Paris with the girl that I made the costume with. And she... Well, the three of them, so I was it was in a group of four. The three of them went to the Moulin Rouge. I don't, I guess it was a can-can show. I don't know. It's really expensive. And oh, I'm sure. I was on a very, very tight budget. I was living off of six euro Subway sandwiches, lunch and dinner. And because Paris is very expensive. And so I know that they had a really good time, and she was like really excited. I just was then thinking like I had like not a misconception about the film, but the entire time I was thinking, yeah, this is what they definitely saw in the Moulin Rouge. And then like as like the story starts to unfold, I'm like thinking, no, I'm pretty sure that they just saw like a can-can show, like a whole bunch of dances. It probably has absolutely nothing to do with. Well, it's a dinner. And so it's like got like the tables. The best way I can explain this is the Elvis movie when he's on stage and then they have like, that's what it is. Show. And yeah, that was basically my experience and thoughts going into this film and not really knowing. I didn't know this was going to be a musical. I obviously knew about like the Moulin Rouge song that was like that was such a big song I remember that I bet you remember that yep what did you know about this movie going into it besides just wanting to see it like what what did you know or if you didn't know anything I knew a lot more than I was expecting to know and I couldn't tell you why 
I've nothing really surprised me. Like I knew there was like some sort of weird love triangle, but like really not a genuine love triangle, more like is it a quadrilateral triangle? Well, because an, an equilateral would have equal sides. Yeah, but a quad is four points. Okay, not a quad. Not okay. It can be a quad. Ignore what I just said. What is it called? Well, I, an isosceles. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, but like it could be an. So the oh, are you talking about? Because like I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain distances, but no, it wouldn't even work. But isosceles would work because the <laughs> isosceles has the one longest side. So like. The two, the two equal sides, which would create the right angle, is Satine and um, Christian. And then the isosceles part, which I can't, like the longest distance, would be the Duke. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, it's just kind of like a third wheel uh, is more. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's more what it is than a love triangle. Um, like, I knew that part. I knew she died. I mean, you know she dies within the first... Yeah, it like starts you off like tangled where uh, Flynn Rider is like, this is the story of how I died. And Christian's like, this is the story of how I lost love and she dies. And you're like, okay. Yeah, so uh, I already knew that she was going to die. And then that happened. I was like, okay, well, no mystery there. Not even if it was supposed to be a mystery of her death. Um, it was more like how was what I was wondering. Um I knew there was going to be lots of singing and dancing, and it was going to be like a theater show, a performance. It was the Moulin Rouge. Yeah, honestly, not surprised. It was, I feel like I've seen a part of it. And like, I want to say Lisa was watching it. Someone, I was, some, I was somewhere and it was playing and I saw maybe like five minutes of it. Granted, I'd seen I the uh, Lady Marmalade music video many a times, and I believe there are clips. Oh, I didn't watch that. I should have watched that. I believe there are clips within that music video. Mm. Okay, I can so see that. So it could just be that and me piecing it together in my memory. Yeah, there was no surprises, I guess. I wasn't shocked by anything. I, I was happy watching it. It flew by really fast. I do wish that I was younger when I had seen this for the first time. I'm sad that I didn't watch this in my 20s, like early mid-20s. Why? I feel like I would have enjoyed it more. It would have felt a little bit more magical. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I now see the appeal of like going to the Moulin Rouge, whereas like before... Like when I was there, it was like, that's not my thing. I I don't have I don't have any interest in that, which is totally fine. Again, I, I it's sometimes really hard to justify the means of like dropping three hundred dollars on something that you don't have a connection with. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I I think like if I was back in Paris, I would be more excited for certain things, but I don't think I would go to the Moulin Rouge. Again, it's it is really expensive. But funny enough, and I didn't realize this, the reason why we stayed in the neighborhood that we did, we stayed in the Montmartre district, which is where it is set. I didn't realize we stayed in that district again because of being so close to the Moulin Rouge. Ah, okay. By the way, that district is the cutest 
district ever. And so like when the story sets up and the father's like, it's such a dangerous neighborhood. I was like, oh, Al, they've done a good thing about this neighborhood. Like they've like really cleaned it up. He's not wrong. So the other thing that the on the street that the Moulin Rouge is on has tons of sex shops and so it's tons more like of a drugs. Red, a red light district in a way. Yeah, that's definitely not legal. Yeah. Yeah, cuz that's not legal there. But that happens on that street regardless and so like when he was describing that I definitely like saw that, but then I was at the same time, I was like, no, that is like the safest neighborhood. It is so beautiful. And it has one of the deepest metro stations. And we didn't know this when we first arrived and we took the uh, stairs and it's like circular and it, or sorry, spiral staircase. We kept going and kept going because like we saw all those people like just lying up this one elevator and we're like, oh, we'll just take the stairs. We're really fit. Because we're like climbing with our big travel backpacks. And we just kept going and going and going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I learned that. And then ever since then, I was like, yeah, there's a reason why people line up specifically just for that elevator. This film has a lot of details, not necessarily a story. I have a lot of like background that I can tell you about. I also have... Um, just like other behind the scenes sort of details and whatnot. The film was released June 1st, 2001. It was a summer release. It was a winter release in Australia. And its budget was $50 million. It grossed worldwide $184 million. In the States alone, I believe it said that it grossed $57 million. So it was a very, very big film outside of the States. It had eight Oscar nominations. It ended up winning Best Art Direction for Set Decoration and Best Costume Design, which speaks to the fact that this film had so many costumes, so many costumes that the wardrobe department had to create 300 of them and at one point had 80 people employed to help out with this task. Wow. It was shot over a period of 192 days and it was all filmed in Sydney, Australia. They did a couple of things outside um, of Sydney, Australia post-production. But other than that, everything was on sets, which makes sense. It was a very, very big film. There was no need to do on location for this. It spent 45 weeks in the U.S. theaters during its initial release. I do wish this was a movie that got put on... 45 weeks? Yeah. That's over a year. No, it's under a year. Sorry, 52 is a year, but that's almost a it's year. It's almost a year. Here's what I was trying to say. Seven weeks short of a year. But I was thinking that's like cool. this is one film with Pride and Prejudice that I would like to go see in the movie theaters. Oh, yes. I agree. Oh, those two. And yes, please. A double feature. <laughs> and that's a lot of sitting. I'd get bored bring something to do <laughs> i'm not there what. to do something i'm there to watch a, you know what would be nice actually is to watch it in uh the theaters that serve food mm, yeah movie and a show yeah movie and a show sorry dinner <laughs> dinner and a show yeah and then my other fact that i found was nicole kimmon actually sustained some injuries while rehearsing i believe it was her knee and she cracked two ribs filming was halted for two weeks 
but they kind of had to get the show on the road. And many of her scenes where she is chest up, she actually was in a wheelchair, which is crazy to think about. I don't really want to watch the movie again knowing that for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually don't think there are a lot of scenes with her chest up, to be honest. She, you see her like waist up a lot of the times and there's a lot of dancing in this film as well. And she's fluttering about is the best way that I can describe it. And then I found something on IMDb that's quite long, but I think I really want to include this because there's a lot of background and backstory as to how Baz Luhrmann came to making this film, the ideation behind it and like the creation for it. I thought it was really interesting So bear bear with me as I read this long thing out because it's very long. So when asked about the inspiration for the film, Baz Luhrmann remarked, When I was in India researching Midsummer's Night Dream, we went to this huge ice cream picture palace to see a Bollywood movie. Here we were with 2,000 Indians watching a film in Hindi, and there were... There was the lowest possible comedy and then incredible drama and tragedy and then breakout in songs. And it was three and a half hours long. We thought we had suddenly learned Hindi because we understood absolutely everything. We thought it was incredible how involved the audience were, how uncool they were, how their coolness had been ripped aside and how they were united in the singular sharing of the story. The thrill of thinking, could we ever do this in the West? Could we ever get past its cerebral cool and perceived cool? It required this idea of comic tragedy. Could you make those switches? It's fine in Shakespeare, low comedy, and then you die in five minutes. (laughs) In Moulin Rouge, we went further. Our recognizable story, though Orphean is in shape, is derived from Camille, La Bohème, where... Whether you know those texts or not, you recognize those patterns and character types. So there are three stories that kind of culminate into Moulin Rouge. And Orphean, I believe, is Shakespeare. Camille is a different work of story. And Le Bohème, Bohème, I can't pronounce this French word, is a very French romantic love story. So I had mentioned to you before you had like watched it that like this movie to me felt very familiar. And I do think it's like the Shakespearean aspect of it because it's, play within a play. We got a love story. We've got a tragedy. There is comedy. There is there's there's like small little quick spurts of yeah comedy throughout that you're like, what? And then it goes back to being like dark and dramatic and yeah, like heartbreaking if you I it yes just yes it was it was all of those things I agree yeah I can understand or see that yeah and it takes you on quite the roller coaster ride of not necessarily like emotions but like you're cheering them on and then you're like upset with them and then you continue to cheer them on and you then I at least I got lost in the story that I forgot she dies at the end. And then when she dies, it was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot this was going to be a tragedy. Because sometimes for me personally, visually, when there's like a lot of happy, colorful things happening, and that's exactly what happens on this in this film, you then are picking and choosing to see the greatness of it and forgetting to see like what's actually 
culminating underneath. There's definitely a lot of darkness in it and there's moments, but in my opinion, that is solely focused primarily when she's with the Duke. Like there's the lightness with their relationship, but Mm -hmm. then she gets pulled aside and you're like, oh shit, yeah, you've got this dude kind of in your life. The other thing that... I said to you that was very familiar was the music. And you were like, oh, yeah, they like use songs from such and such. And I said, no, it has to do with the arrangements, like knowing how it was actually supposed to sound and feeling very familiar. But we both had agreed at that point that Debbie or her husband, Rob, had played the soundtrack. Did you feel that? Or no? It all felt familiar, but like I knew all of those, like a lot of the songs individually when you listen to what, what it is. Um, it was the opening, the first few pieces of it that sounded so familiar. Mm-hmm. Later on, no or less, I would say. But yes, the beginning, I'd say like 30 to 40 minutes, whatever was played back to back to back I was like I've heard this I definitely have heard this yeah and I will that could come down to like Debbie putting on music while she's cooking and waiting for us to get picked up and so we've only heard the beginning the the beginning of the soundtrack over and over again like that could just be very well what happened because I know like she played Les Miserables or Les, Les Mis uh that one was played a lot we had Celine Dion played a lot which isn't necessarily a movie but very familiar with Celine Dion's work. So it just was like very interesting watching this film. And as I said, like having this like recognizable experience that I haven't had in a while because usually like going into a movie that I don't know much about, it's like totally like joy. I had no idea what I was watching. Whereas this was like, okay, like there's so many familiar undertones to it. I ended up watching the movie almost twice. I stopped at the last 30 minutes of the other film because I I had actual work that I had to get done. So I had to focus on that. So I wasn't able to finish watching the movie twice. But that first 30 minutes of this film is the most exciting roller coaster I have ever been on with a film where I was like, holy shit, like, what are we doing? What like this is. This is how you start a movie. You are diving right into it. Even, okay, the first minute just had me laughing. The opening of... Yeah, the Austrian falling into his apartment. No, no. Prior to that, it's the man conducting the music. Like, the the movie hasn't even really started yet. Yeah. And it's the man conducting, and he is just going off, and it's so great, and you're getting a an intro or a taste of the music or the soundtrack that you're going to hear throughout the film. Oh, it, yes. And then, yeah, no, we go, it's fast paced. It's, it's It's, very fast paced and they set you up or sorry, the story sets you up as a viewer of, we, we have some grand rules that we need to kind of lay out so you can kind of continue on and get you attuned to like very specific characteristics of all the characters. And also like the camera work, really, mm-hmm. it like whips around and the the way that the the actors or the characters are like they emote sometimes are very over the top. And you're like, it's it's like jarring and off-putting at first. 
Um, but as you go on, you realize that's just like the style of how the film is told. Yeah. I will say, though, that starts to soften throughout. Throughout. Yes. And I haven't really picked on as to why necessarily. Like, it could be the film's getting darker. The tragedy portion is coming through. So the quick switches is to, like, emote the comedy or make it feel grander than what it actually is. And then as things are becoming more and more serious, the film work starts to become more serious because I felt as though by the end of the film, it had lost that like really beautiful characteristic aspect. And I was starting to get not bored, but I was like, oh, I see how this is going to end. And this is like, this is getting sad. But then in the back of your mind, you're like, well, it's a fucking tragedy. Of course, it's going to be sad. Mm-hmm. So that that's just like my like notes on it. If the one thing I was having difficulties just like stepping back from at the beginning is if you've seen Romeo plus Juliet, the 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 camera work, the over the top, the camp is so similar style wise, whereas when you watch other films by him it's less similar like it still has that but it's not as strong so there's a costume party um scene that happens in Romeo and Juliet that is the way that it is shot and like the way that the characters just like make these like oh like random noises and like it the camera yeah work just zips around is very very similar to the beginning of this film especially when they first go to uh Moulin Rouge Mm -hmm. yeah because you're you enter off the street you're not even actually in the Moulin Rouge you're in this like little courtyard and then you go into and like everyone's dressed up and everyone's moving and there's music and there's dancing and yeah like you're just in it and it's very similar to the costume party that happens in Romeo and Juliet so before we like dive into the film, we found out last week that the DVD is missing. We might we might know where it is. So I have no trailers, even though I know this film has trailers. It just we don't have that. So eventually, maybe one day I'll pop it in and see. I am really curious to know if this is widescreen. I'm also really curious to know if there's bonus features on it because on IMDb it mentions specific bonus features. It's widescreen. Okay. Because mom bought it in the last five years. Oh, okay. It is a recent purchase because I really wanted to watch Moulin Rouge. We didn't own it at that point. It wasn't on any streaming platforms because mm-hmm. five years ago, Disney Plus didn't even exist. No, it didn't. So... Or just, or it had, but it hadn't been launched in Canada. Yeah. So it's a, in the last five years, it was purchased. Like I'm thinking 2019, 2020 at least. Yeah. It's not wrapped. I know that. I, like I unwrapped, I was going to sit down and watch it. (laughs) Just never got to it. Okay. So I'll jump into the movie. We start off in Paris. It's 1900. But we actually go back a year and we never really visit 1900 again because it's just Christian sitting in his office retelling the year prior. And we see him in 
1899. Christian wants to become a writer. His dad is trying to scare him off. You can't go into Paris and become a writer. And Christian's very obsessed with love. So through a lot of different little situations that happen, he ends up being a playwright because this gentleman falls through his ceiling. He then helps him write a song about in Switzerland about the hills are alive with the sound of music, which I found it funny that I picked up on the hills are alive with the sound of music right away on that intro song. I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. And then I didn't even think about, about it. And then when I kicked off again, I was like, oh, I really did actually pick up on that song because sometimes with my brain and orchestra music, I can force lyrics into places that they don't belong. Oh, okay. So I thought, no, it, it's definitely the sound of music. I was like, ah, no. And then it came on and I was correct. So the group, there's a group of them, says he is to meet Satine to sell her the show. He is very unaware of the fact that they are not well-liked amongst the Moulin Rouge. And uh, Zidler has an eye out to always kick them out, it seems. And so, because there's the line, which I picked up the second time. He was like, we avoided Zidler. Like, we're in the place. And they sit at this booth, which looks very fancy and very full of money. I would like to know how they got that uh, booth. but Yeah, and they weren't noticed. That's I was trying to figure out, <laughs> how are you sitting there not getting noticed? Okay. There's, there's some very situational specific things that happen where I'm like, this isn't realistic. You're telling it because of comedic sit, like for comedic sake and to propel the story. Yeah, because they had to sit there for the, the next, next thing. things that were going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So Satine drops down from the ceiling. She does her little dance. And while she's doing her dance, Zidler is Zidler is the owner of the Moulin Rouge, tells her that her date is set up with the Duke and he points her out, him out, sorry. And when she looks over, there is a kerfuffle that has happened. And instead of actually looking at the Duke, She's looking at Christian and she's like, oh, okay, like that's who I'm uh, meeting. She ends up in the tower, this elephant tower, and she meets Christian because he's been sent to the room to talk to her about a play. And she thinks that she's supposed to sleep with him. And he's ends up saying her to her about love. And he goes on about that she's a poet. Then there's a mention of Toulouse and she is like freaking out because then she's realized that this is not the Duke. Then Zillow knocks on the door and is like, I've got uh, the Duke for you. She hides him and she proceeds to almost hook up with him. And then there's more kerfuffle that happens and they interrupt this because then they talk about this play that's about to happen and they sell him on the play. Yeah, essentially Christian's almost going to get caught hiding in a room and then to get out of it, they're like, oh, well, we were just practicing for a play. And then uh, one, I can't remember, there is many people in the, the troupe. Of, there's a lot of them. But like, Toulouse is like the most important name. Uh, shows up and is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we were. And then they're all just suddenly... All of them are in the the elephant. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And here's the the piano pieces that we're putting in, and and this is the direction. And the Duke's like, oh, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And so they're just writing a play 
answering his questions on the spot yeah. to get out of it what all. had yeah. just happened yeah. and the duke is all excited Satine is also a bit excited too because early on we realize or we find out that she wants to be a famous actress like that's her dream she actually doesn't want to be a courtesan and the Duke is like okay I'm ready to sign on and fund this and change the Moulin Rouge into no longer a cabaret and turn it into a theater so when he signs the papers with Zidler he agrees to basically own the Moulin Rouge but also marry I believe Satine on the opening night Mm -hmm. or like not necessarily maybe marry her but like they are now a couple. Yeah. There is a coupling. That yeah. Is happening. <laughs> I was just now thinking about that. I was like, wait, there was no like wedding plans put into fruition. No, he just said, and Satine's mine, yeah. essentially. So for about 45 minutes at this point, because 30 minutes, 40. Yeah, about 45 minutes of it, there's like singing. There's Christian and Satine hooking up behind the Duke's back. Um, basically they're falling in love with each other. They are also saying that they can't be jealous of like what's actually about to happen because Satine says to Christian that I can't be with you because I'm signed to the Duke. And the cabaret workers are starting to slowly whisper into Duke's ears. But the fact that like the play that is happening literally right in front of you is what's actually happening behind your back. And then he finds out like that Christian and Satine are actually in love and the night that they decide to run away from each other, no, run away together. <laughs> Not from each other. Yes, together. Away from the Duke. Away from the Duke. Uh, Satine gets told by Zidler that she has to break it off with him and go sleep with the Duke that night. She ends up having a spell of like coughing up blood, which she has done previously. And she gets seen by the doctor. The doctor tells Zidler, not her, that she is dying. Because she doesn't have the right to know. (laughs) What's on her body autonomy is non-existent in 1899. And so Zidler is like, okay, like, well, she can't die. Not really like that. But like, it basically... She has pissed off Christian because Christian thinks that she went to the Duke. The Duke doesn't really necessarily believe what had happened. And basically, she's in the wrong. Opening night is happening. And Christian decides, well, you know what? She never really loved me. She just used me. I have to go pay her because, like, that's just what you did back then. So he's like... He's pissed. He's angry. He's very, very angry. And so he has a bounty on him. So like if he shows up, he will get shot. He makes his way onto stage. There's this like <gasps> gasp happen because like the curtain goes up and he's trying to pay her. And it's right in front of the Duke. There's this gun that's going flying or whatever. There's a gun that falls. Who gets shot? No one. Does the gun go off? The gun goes off, but no one gets shot. And th- yes. And I wish she had gotten shot. So I thought that's what had happened. But and she just dies from the sickness. But my goodness, it would have been more of a tragedy if she had gotten shot. That's the one thing that actually bothered me. I'm wondering, though, if it's not written like that because... 
you as the audience member are just waiting for the death to happen. I think like you're waiting like, okay, she's going to get, she's the one who's going to accidentally get killed. Cause like, you know, she dies. Yeah. Regardless, you know that she is going to die and you know that she's going to die cause she's sick. But could you imagine being Christian and not knowing that she is sick and that she is going to die and she's terminally ill mm-hmm. and then she gets shot because someone is trying to shoot you? I think that would have been more. Uh, I know. I know. Like, uh, There's like two ways I'm looking at them. Like that would be a great ending, but I, I actually don't mind. I don't hate the ending that we were given. Like I, I feel as though he then gets a little bit more closure. Well, exactly. But the thing is, that does that makes it less of a tragedy if oh. you're giving that character closure. That's what, like, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Like, I see what you're saying. The the, fee- the gut feeling is more ah if she had gotten shot. Gotcha. Okay, fair enough. Anyways, so the movie ends with him writing the story as to like what had happened because he came to Paris to become a writer. Say lovey, and then that's the end of the film. So there's multiple scenes in this movie where we see Christian on a typewriter. Yes. And there's one specific scene that you watch. And all I could think was, this is what King Kong wishes it was. Oh. (laughs) So there's the scene where he's typing Skull Island very slowly and dramatically. Mm -hmm. And like the camera and the music doesn't it like it's the there's a part where Christian is typing and it's like dramatic and like super campy. And that's what King Kong wishes it was yeah and so, where it missed the mark so you're saying baz Luhrmann needs to do king kong he yeah definitely should have been in charge of that movie <laughs> that'd been fascinating king kong, it would have been over the top it would have been <laughs> what <laughs> then i wouldn't be nervous about ever having to watch king kong again there you go <laughs> i also should mention that i forgot to mention that nicole kidman and ethan hawk did all of their singing which is fascinating yeah, the, I did not know that Nicole Kidman could sing. I didn't know that Ethan Hawke could sing either. So it was, I was watching it and I had to look this up because I wanted to know right then and there, but I didn't want to spoil anything else because sometimes that's what happens is I get too interested and I go down this Keep rabbit hole and, and reading, I'm like, yeah. oh, I need to stop. But this one, I was like, hey, just need to leave this fact here and and leave it there. I did think the way that the Duke found out that Christian and Satine were actually in love behind his back wasn't necessarily realistic because you don't see Satine have any friends per se. So when the other courtesan goes up and reveals what is happening to Duke, there's like, I feel as though like it's supposed to be this big betrayal, but it's not really a betrayal because you don't see her with anyone else. And I'm also really confused as to like why this person would do this, because A, the Duke has provided all of you with like security and jobs because it seemed as though like the trend of like cancans might have been like on the downward spiral and there's a reason why like the theater was supposed to mm-hmm. be happening why do you think she did that uh i don't know jealousy she wasn't actually friends with she was pissed I, off i know for some reason i thought it would have been yeah like if duke the duke had seen it 
Like there was so many times where he almost, and then they were trying to like advert his gaze or cover up what was going on between Christian and Satine. I thought there was going to be an accidental actual moment rather than someone just... But then the thing with that is the Duke then there on the spot remembers and reflects everything. Yes, but would have to... There would be an instant confrontation Mm. between Christian and the Duke had, like, he seen it Mm -hmm. between Satine and, like, also conflict, instant conflict between Satine. And so that would change how you would write, like, how the ending would have played out. Yeah. Because the Duke isn't someone who, if he saw it happening in front of him, he wouldn't go, oh, I'll deal with this later. Mm -hmm. He's lots of emotions. and. Uh, wants things done dealt with instantly yeah i also found out that in 2017 a broadway show was actually made i didn't look into see how it did or if it's still on broadway so i know nothing about it but i am really curious to know how that would because basically it's a show within a show within a show yes (laughs) <laughs> Which would be fun. Showception. <laughs> so I was like really curious to know what that would all look like. And then I, it's very like the beginning and the comedy that happens within this film is very reminiscent of pantomime where you could have a good old panto. Oh, wow. And so like, that's how I was reading all of this humor as very like stage pantomime and not, not even just like yeah like the comedic relief that you find in Shakespeare is not pantomime it's actual like ha 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 whereas this to me was just like with Shakespeare there's also like a lot of play on words or like quick wit yeah and if you aren't if you don't know what some of those the words mean or like are familiar with like things around that time, then you it goes so far uh, and beyond and above your head, mm-hmm. um, which this didn't. No, it didn't. Thankfully. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And then I really appreciate like we haven't really gone over the mu- music, but I really liked all of the music that was selected, and it has stood the test of time. That every single song that has been chosen is timeless like such great music that was picked you can sing along to all of it it's just and like they they really play into the lyrics like whatever this the song lyrics are is what is happening kind of around at that time yeah and i thought that this was actually a very brilliant choice in the sense that even if you don't like musicals, you still then can really connect with it because you're not sitting there and being like, oh, this other song that I have to sit and listen to and like figure out what's going on because they're all pop songs. They're not like popular songs is what I'm trying to get at, that you can just like jam out to True. them. And they're like, they're not the full song. Majority Correct. of them is not the full song. They're like short little snippets. Yeah. So my only criticism for the songs is that beginning, not the beginning, but the first half an hour when they're in the elephant room, there's a song that keeps getting reused a bit too much. 
And that is my only complaint is so like the Elton John song. I think it's the Elton John song. I like like I like that song, but it just kept getting like brought into everything. And I was like, OK, we need to pick something else. It was because he was well, it was well, he was trying to read poetry to her. That was the poetry he was trying to yeah. say to her. Then she turns it into a song when the Duke shows up and then the Dukes start singing it back. So it just yes, it is sung in a loop a little bit a couple times but it just happened to be what that scene was i felt yeah no i don't disagree with that and then i yeah i just it came down to like a connectivity level of like i don't really like musicals i'm going to struggle with a lot of musicals in the future where i'm gonna have to sit there and actually think about it but i just thought it was such a fun play on a different kind of musical mm-hmm. that you don't really see. No, you don't. And like the only parallel that I could make would be like Glee. Like that would be the next thing that happens where you're taking popular songs and throwing them in a story and singing and dancing to it. Yeah. And then there was another one that has happened. I don't think movie wise, but no, maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. But other than that, like, pretty good experience with the film. There's, like, some things that happen in the film where you're like, why? And then you're just like, oh, it's a tragedy. Like, this is a story. This is, like, the, um, I was going to say customer. This is the character's mistakes that they're going to make. They have to learn from them. Because, like, of course, when they first start like Christian is first telling her like we can just like leave and she's like we can't leave or whatever that's before like they try to actually leave that last time I was just like you guys literally can't leave like there are no contracts that forbid you like she didn't know about the contract that actually was, was signed upon on, yeah like in this her place kind of binding her to yeah yeah stay. but she just felt as though like she had to stay in this entire time i was like girl you can leave just go yeah <laughs> like there's literally nothing and then of course like hiding her sickness details obviously drove me crazy <laughs> and i was like this is so sneaky but other than that there's not much else to really go on about this film unless you have anything that you wanted to no, it's just beautiful to watch, and I do agree. I wish I could see this in a movie theater because yeah. surround sound and seeing. I think the immersiveness of it, all the costumes and the set design, like blown up on a big screen, would be yeah, lovely. Yeah, you could see all the details as well. Yeah, and this film is obviously shot on film, and it's they used a very high quality film. Mm-hmm. Like I can't get over that this film cost fifty million dollars. But I think that goes to show maybe Baz Luhrmann doesn't line his pockets with the budget is what I will say. He knows like he can see returns elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Because like sometimes I feel as though when I look at like big budget films. You're like who's getting the cut and who's getting the most. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So it could be like it's a $50 million, sorry, $50, $50 million film and in everyone's contracts, like Nicole Kidman's could have been like, you're getting paid X amount, but you also get a cut of everything else that we make on top of that, which is a much more attractive way of doing a contract and getting paid, but you're not guaranteed that it would be successful. 
Okay. Do you want to rate this film? Yeah. Okay. What is your story? I give it a four out of five simply because she wasn't shot. Oh, <laughs> unless I got the ending wrong. No, no, I don't know. She wasn't shot. She just died naturally. We didn't even see her die. You see her cough up blood. Yeah. And, and I guess then, like, like, that's it. Yeah. It's just also like timing perfectly of like, she just finished the show and she coughs up blood and she died. Like, yeah. it's just anyways, I'm also a four, not because of that. Maybe a little bit because of that, but I think it was like not being told that she was dying and um, just like other tiny little miniature details where it was like, girl, you can just leave. You can do all this, but like <laughs> the show must go on, though. Exactly. So it's just like it's not really a fair mark, but it's still worth a four. Music. I give it a 4.5 out of five. I also get a 4.5 out of five with my only one being the Elton John, your story, just because. I actually think it slowed down the scene a little bit because I was like, get on with it. Yes, because it was was just like, I was so excited to learn more about the music. And then all of a sudden it would go back into this and it was like, we've literally just gone over this. Like, so like that's the tiniest detail. That's it. Visuals. I get a 4.5 out of 5. What would have made it a 5? If I could see this on big screen. So maybe it's a 5. It's yeah, it's a 5. Like I, I miss not being immersed in it, but to my, I'm changing my score right now. Excuse me. Okay, so I'm also a five, which means our score is exactly the same. You gave it a four, a four point five, and a five. Correct. Okay, so I know what the overall, which is, it is a nine out of ten. It is a nine out of ten. It's on par with Tangled, which notingly is another musical. <laughs> Maybe I do secretly like Yeah, maybe you do. <laughs> Just a cover. I don't like musicals. We'll see when Phantom comes up. <laughs> oh, I love Phantom. Yeah, I, I gave visuals a five. The mere fact that I could not look away. And then after seeing the first 30 minutes when getting through the rest of the film and just wanting to go back and so excited to see it all over again. I just honestly was always waiting to see what she was wearing. Yeah. And there's actually one thing that bothered me is when she puts on that red dress and she's like, I'm ready to go see the Duke. And then she's wearing black. And then she shows up and she's wearing the black. Yes. Yeah. And you see, granted, you see her in that red dress later. Yeah. But that really bothered me. Yeah. It bothers a couple of like people for continuity reasons. I also can't figure out why, but I'm wondering if that's what she was wearing underneath. Still, I don't know. The whole look was just different. Yes. It it really did bother me. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But anyways, so we both have a 9 out of 10. IMDb has it at a 7.6. Everyone's allowed their opinion. I don't know what. I do feel as though like there were artists that were approached for this film. And because they didn't like the topic of the film, they didn't allow their music. So like Rolling Stones was one that did not allow their music to be put into the film. Huh. And then there's another uh, band that was not allowing their music to be put into the band. So I think it comes down to the specific topics that are hit within this. It's 2001. One, yeah. Yeah. Apparently sex is really scary. And it just I mean, like it is what it is. So right, 7.6. But it's it's got all the Oscar nominations. So it did did really well. So when we find the DVD, we know where it is. It's just, it's a little bit. Well, we think we know where it is. (laughs) We hope we know where it is. 
But when we do maybe get it back, do we keep this DVD? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if we don't get it back, then I'm buying another copy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the other ones that we're missing. I found well, I found, found you found one of them. <laughs> that was just a pure accident. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. It is that time where we are going to pick next week's DVD. We are going to bid adieu to Moulin Rouge and see what uh the 91st movie is going to be. You ready? I am. Okay, let's go. What are we watching? Okay. I don't hate it. It's not a political film and it's not a war film. So like there's there's that. Okay. <laughs> I'm not really selling it. Um, it is a romantic comedy. It has Tina Fey in it and it has Amy Poehler as Dax Shepard. And I think... I can only think of Michael Scott. What is his name? What is his real name? Oh, no. Have you seen it? I have. Have I seen it? I don't know if you've seen it. Steve Carell. I believe Steve Carell is in this film. Uh, let's check. Okay, sorry. Okay, so Steve Carell and... Uh, no, it's so the top like two people I would say is Tina Fey, Amy Poehler. Dak Shepard is Amy Poehler's boyfriend i believe i'm looking up if you have seen you marked it down as not seen is this baby mama it is baby mama you've seen it i've seen it yes seen it more than once i feel like correct i have seen it more than once yeah Yeah. okay you haven't seen it or this might be a film where you're gonna get part way i'm gonna start watching it and be like oh i've seen this before yeah yeah off the top of my head no, I I believe you and mom went to the movie theater to watch this. Correct. Yeah. And I wasn't there. So this is why I know I didn't see it. Yes. And you guys came back and raved on about it and told me you some one of you described scenes to me and I thought that's dumb. <laughs> but I might have just been really salty because I didn't go to the movie theater with you guys. Oh, it's Steve Martin. Okay, Steve Martin. Not Carell. Yeah, not Carell. One, one of the Steves. One of the Steves. Yeah. And then I knew. I knew Dak Shepard was in this. Uh, 2008. I didn't realize it was that. I thought it was earlier 2000s. I didn't realize it was late 2000s that it had come out on. It possibly might be on Amazon Prime. It is. It's on Amazon Prime. So uh, we don't have to share the DVD. We're going to end the episode there. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this week's episode. If you would like to follow us along, hit the follow or subscribe button. If you'd like to follow us on any of our socials, those are linked in the show notes below. Until then, have a really great week. Take care, everyone. Bye.
This is like now the third time this has come up where there is a movie called The Ring and it comes up in the top 10. And I'm like, I don't want to watch The Ring. But we don't own The Ring. We don't own that The Ring. We own a different Danielle Steele, I believe, TV, like directed TV DVD movie called The Ring. (laughs) That was the second one. There was, it would be fascinating (laughs) if we owned The Ring. And I just like had this like giant sigh of relief of like, oh, thank God we're not watching The Ring. Are we, are we, are we not doing any Halloween movies? That is next week's. Oh, we get it just, are we doing one or are we doing two? How many weeks of Halloween? We only we do one. One week of Halloween? Okay. Yeah. Because we only own like 15 Halloween movies. <laughs> Last year it was E.T., was it not? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. 